But let's uh, pray and we'll get started then. Father, thank you indeed for your pathway leads unto life, freedom, joy, peace. Oh, Lord, how good it is to follow you. Because with it comes uh, unbridled blessings upon us. And that is what we desire in our lives for your namesake so that we can have an overflow to every other person in our life around us. So meet us, we beseech you in this time and control us, fill us and direct us by your blessed Holy Spirit. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned now, that's something of my burdens why I mention this is that uh, by splitting you up and the girls will be with a really godly woman, Ruth McWhite, and they'll, who knows what they're saying to them, I don't know. Uh, but I wanted to have an opportunity where we could just focus on guys' stuff and not be, uh, you know, things that wouldn't be pertinent to them. So that's where we're going to direct our attention in these uh, sessions, this third session this whole week. Someone shared with me not too long ago that, and I, I don't know how valid it is, but he said that, you know, Satan wants to, so hates God, he wants to flip everything God does. He distorts it. Uh, he's the liar, so he wants to destroy everything connected with God, God's plans or purposes. And so this person shared with me this. He said, God's order is God supreme. Then under him is man. No question about it. That he gave man authority over this entire earth and everything in it. He was always to be under God. Then next was the woman was created to be a help meet for man. One who would help him uh, take on and accept part of his mission as her mission too. To serve God and to follow after Him. And then children were to be under the parents. And we're all to use the earth to take care of it, but to promote God's glory on the earth. Now, Satan's flipped it, hasn't he? Because if you, in some environmental circles, the earth is everything. That, you know, a hardcore environmentalist, they believe that the optimum number of human beings is 450 million people. Yeah. That means they're going to do away with 7.5 billion others. And so the 450 million have to be environmentally sensitive people because we've got to, you know, protect the earth like we were God or something. You know, the earth's been... God takes care of the earth without our help. Now, pollution and things like that are legitimate concerns and things you can do to not, you know, pollute the planet is truly worthy of us as believers. But then children also dominate the stage and uh, seem to run wild. And then now, as you well know, women... uh, have flip-flopped roles with men and demand equality and all that stuff and and hate being in any type of situation where men are in control can they see that's fundamentally wrong 
and then men, and then God last. So, I don't know. You could argue this, and I won't with you. It isn't my things. It's someone else's thoughts about it. But I think it gets the point across that there's men are under attack, and you know that. You know that uh, our whole role in, in life and society is all up in the air, and is questioned as to was a real man. Some of that is compounded by the fact that it's not true with you, but it, in all likelihood it is that half the kids in this country grow up without a father. Their divorce is 50% of the marriages in that way. And so if they see a father, it's not very often. And so they grow up with no real role model as to what is a real man. Or maybe the mom is the dominant figure in their life and they know that isn't what they're supposed to be. They don't know how to look around them and decide what, what, what am I supposed to be? And I've had more than one guy come to me and say, I don't know what I'm supposed to be uh, as a man, as a guy, because there's no role models around to look to in their life. And that's tragic and it's sad, but it's true. Now, you can do something about that, and some do. They turn to Hollywood. Well, you know, what do I see on the screen, the silver screen? You know, maybe that's the epitome of it. So, I mean, you could go there. And so, if you're trying to find out what a real man is, you could go to Hollywood. And so, who would you look to? Well, Barney, of course, you know. Barney's such a intimidating figure, isn't he? So... Yeah, I don't know that you want to be like Barney, do you? No, Barney's not your picture of a real man. They only gave him one bullet, you know. He's loading his gun there. Or, what about Kip, you know? Kip's a you know, cage fighter for sure here. But what is a real man? I mean, you look at Hollywood and you think, well, it's somebody who, who's super strong, who can impose his will on somebody else, <laughs> you know. Uh, but no, the reality is none of those, you guys, uh, we all know it's laughable. But more likely to the point is, uh, you know, the Rambo type. That is a real man, you know, with the gigantic big biceps. And he's somebody that endures enormous amounts of pain and also inflicts enormous amounts of pain on everybody around him, he seems unstoppable and he blows things up, you know. So you can look at that and say, wow, that's a real man. But, you know, none of that is really what a real man necessarily is. But there are all kind of images about that. A real man, he's athletic. Uh, he hunts, he fishes, he's an outdoors guy. Well, you know what? Um Maybe you're not athletic. Does that mean there's no chance of you being a real man? You know, a real man's man. Well, these are false concepts. As far as I know, Jesus didn't play soccer or basketball either. Now, he might have played something growing up. I don't know what it was. But uh, but nonetheless, there's nobody more of a man than our Lord Jesus was. He's the perfect man. So we don't want to look to Hollywood. We want to look to the Word of God. And so what I want to do in this time is, 
have a look at what the Scripture has to say about all of this to give us our own pattern. I'm going to cough again. (coughs) We can't necessarily look around you. I wish you could. I wish you could look around and and maybe God will put somebody like that in your life. Uh, He's an older man and he really does model godly, manly living for you that you'd want to emulate. But if you don't, you still have this. You still have God's Word to go to. And you've got here the perfect man. Now, initially, there were two perfect men, weren't there? Yeah. Adam. He was created perfect, wasn't he? God said it was good. So, initially... So, let's have a look first off with what the first man was like. So we're going to look at a real man was Adam, but then he became a ruined man, redeemed and regenerated man. So what about the first man? He was perfect. He was what God intended real men to be. So for that, let's turn over to Genesis and have a look here at what God says about it. Now, there's a couple of sections that refer to man. But let's start with Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let him, or them, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it, that is, take control of it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then he said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of all the earth. Every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it should be food for you. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. And it was the sixth day. Now, he goes on to kind of sum things up in chapter 2 about reviewing the creation story here. But he comes back to the point in Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, those are two important words. (coughs) To cultivate means to develop it, to keep it beautiful. He's a gardener. The first man was a gardener. He did work outside. But the entire earth was under his control and dominion. So, you know, God isn't um, adverse to giving you authority, to giving you a position of authority over others. But it's always under his authority that he gives it to you. And when he gives you authority, he gives it to you for the sake of others, not for your own. Not to 
get your own little kingdom here and, and create your own worshipers. No, you're to have authority. You exercise it for the sake of the people under you and around you. But you are to be men who exercise authority and to do it in a, in a way pleasing to the Lord whom you're under his authority. So to cultivate it was to keep it beautiful, to, to, I'm sure things died, you know, fruits would come and they'd wither and maybe he had his own compost pile. I don't know what he did, but plants grow and plants need pruning, but that was his job was to keep it all as beautiful as he, as he could. And then this next word is to keep it. That's a big one. That means to protect it. Keep it safe. So here what we can gather so far is this. God, the real man, he was created in God's image. That means we were and are created to reflect who God is. Means something of his wisdom, his justice, his compassion, his mercy. You're to reflect God to everyone around you because you're made in his image. That's purposeful on God's part. He wants, unlike every other creature on the earth, we are made in God's image and, and they have some semblance of God because they're part of his, the work of his hands. But in a very unique way, you and I are made like him to live like him and to reflect him to everyone around us. That's man's real purpose. That's why he was made and created. So we were there created to care for, protect, and guide all of creation. There was something else, though, about it all. We were also made for him, by him and for him, that we were to be uh, have fellowship with him. And all of that, uh, we'll get to this in, in a bit, but he, uh, he would always walk, he would walk with the Lord in the cool of the day and enjoyed fellowship with God. And that too is part of why God made us, is to enjoy Him, to glorify Him and enjoy Him. Uh, and we can experience that as we worship the Lord together. Alright, so that's what the perfect man was, the real man. What happen next though so here we sum it up real men are created in God's image real men are created for fellowship with God real men are always under God's authority accountable to him have a sense of that real men have authority but it's to be used to take care of others what happened well we know the story in Genesis chapter 3 Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree uh, of the garden? So this is so typical of the devil. He, He questions what God said. And the woman said to the serpent, Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The reality is God didn't say you couldn't touch it. He just said you can't eat the fruit thereof. 
Okay, I'm totally speculating now, but I'm going to do it to make a point. Uh, Don't add to the Word of God. If you do, you can get yourself in trouble. You, You can make the Lord appear more strict than He really is, and you distort the character of God. So be careful about adding to the Word of God. She thought, maybe she thought, it's a good idea. If I never touch it, I'll never eat from it. But she actually added something. Okay, total speculation off the record. What if the serpent was sitting on the branch of that tree? He's touching it, and he's not dead. Wow. Doesn't that tell her that maybe the serpent's telling the truth? If she doesn't know the word of God the way she should, she could be deceived at this point, couldn't she? Because she thought, you can't touch this, because if you touch it, you'll die. But that isn't what God said at all. But what if that serpent was hanging on the branch and he's talking to her. It's pretty smart for a serpent, a snake. So now what? Now you've got two points to make her think that maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe if I eat it, I'll be as smart as he is. Well, she's already way smarter than him. But you see my point? Don't add to the Word of God. Know it and know it well, but don't add to it because you might find yourself trapped or distorting who God is. So then we know what happened then, didn't we? He says to her, point blank, he contradicts God. You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. They were already like God. But in this way, knowing good and evil. They already, they only knew, already knew good. He could only offer them evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise like the snake, She took it, and she ate it, and she gave it also to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Wow. Now, where was Adam at this time? He said he was with her. Why didn't Adam protect her? Why didn't he stand up? Why didn't he put a stop to this? I don't know. But he went along with what she had to say and what she offered him, and he became partaker with it. Now, that step was leaning to her own understanding and deciding God isn't really good. God's trying to withhold something good from me. Isn't that the same battle you face uh, constantly? Is God's way really the best way? I mean, the world looks so cool. And there's so much fun and enjoyment and excitement out there, so it would seem. And is God's way seem so restrictive? And, ah, man, I don't know. And the church people, I don't know whether they want to hang out with those guys. Uh, is this really the is God's way really the best way? That's exactly what Eve faced, and she leaned her own understanding about it and decided, no, maybe maybe there's life here. Maybe there's more to life. 
Well, I want you to know that this is such a parallel to 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 to 17. It's remarkable, really, the parallel so direct. He's talking here in 1 John about the world, what's in it. That is the system that Satan's designed to draw us away from the Lord. So he says this, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, so these are two diametrically opposed plans for your life. Here's the devil's plans here, couched in all the things that the world offers. And then there's God's plan to follow him and his word. All right, so what's in the world? For all that is in the world, here it is. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world's passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. There's the choice. He says lust of the... I said flush here. It should be an E, sorry. Lust of the flesh. That parallel to... It was good, good. It looked like delicious. And then lust of the eyes. She said it was a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. That's pride. There it is. So that's Satan's options for you. And the end of it is death. So there you are. There's your choices. Now Adam and Eve had that in front of them and they chose... Satan's plan, which ends in death. God's ends in life. Now, what happened next with all of this? Well, of course, God then, uh, they realized, rather that they became back to Genesis, they came ashamed of who they were. They realized that here we're naked. Before, that had never been a problem to them. They were happy with who they were and what they were. They weren't ashamed of it. And they accepted themselves and they accepted each other without any issues or problems. Now suddenly they're ashamed of what they are and who they are. And so they make themselves a covering for it all. And so he says in verse 7 of Genesis 3, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves lawn coverings. So they covered themselves. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Now their sense of shame and guilt is enormous in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. How sad. So now they're hiding first from each other and now they're hiding from God. And so they, they are so afraid and full of fear about what might happen there. They're hiding now from God. They used to love God's presence, used to enjoy being with the Lord, not, not anymore. Now they're running away from him, trying to hide from him. But the Lord seeks them out. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And look, 
God knew where they were. He's God. That's a question not so much that God needs an answer to it as they do. Where are you? Just exactly where are you? It's one you might have to ask yourself this week. Where am I? Am I really following the Lord or am I pretty much following the world? Where am I? Where am I in relation to the Lord Jesus? Is he just a part of my life, kind of? Or is he my life altogether? Where am I in relation to him? Well, this is the question that God put before Adam and Eve here. Where, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. And he, the Lord, said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now look at the man's response here. Now, he was given the task of what? Keeping and protecting and caring for everything in creation. That includes the woman, doesn't it? She's part of creation. He's supposed to protect her. What does he do here? He says, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate it. Wow. So, number one, he blames God. Now, I mean, you made this woman, and, and you gave her to me, so it's kind of pushing it, you know, on on God's fault. But then he we use this expression, throwing somebody under the bus. I don't know where that came from, but, I mean, it is what you think. It's pushing somebody in front of a moving bus and letting the bus run over them instead of you. Instead of, you know, saving them from the bus, you push them down to save your own skin. And you, you sacrifice them to save yourself. Wow. This is what... Adam does is that that's a ruined man isn't it he's the opposite of what man was created to be man was created to sacrifice himself and for the people under his care he sacrifices them to protect himself ouch that's ruined man that's the opposite of what God created men and women to be or man to be that's self-centeredness, and that's what we were talking about here in this lesson. Self-willed, he chose to disobey God. Now he's going to protect himself with his, now he's self-serving. He's going to cover himself. Um, all of this at her expense, really, and he didn't seem to care about it at all. This is what characterizes fallen men. Now, let's be honest about this now. In the world we live in, many men think of women as nothing more than just personal sexual toys, right? So the proliferation of pornography and all that goes with that, it why it's so evil in God's sight is because it degrades women. And I know, I understand it. I know it's very powerful. And I know girls don't get this. They're not going to get it at all. 
in our brains, we can look at a girl and only see her body. We don't care about her personality. We don't care what kind of person she is at all. That's not even on the, the radar there. It's just her body is what we glue in on. Now, if you continue like that, though, and that's all you see about her, then you've really degraded her and you've turned her into a soulless object. That you've stripped her of all personhood. That's what pornography does. It just strips girls. And in time, you only see girls like bodies. So in, when you get to know them, you see them as a person and not just a body, but a person. And that is more healthy for you. It's why, you know, being friends with girls is not a bad idea for you because it reminds you, way that's a person there, not just a body that I lust after. But when you lust after a girl like that, what happens with this and with men, they sexually abuse girls to satisfy their own lust. That's what Adam's doing. He's going to toss the girl down to save himself, to satisfy his own desires. That's ruined man. That's not a real man. That's a ruined man. Uh, women in this country are physically abused every nine seconds. So men who have power and strength that was given by God, superior power and strength, to protect women, now use it to dominate them and to abuse them. That's horrible. That's the exact opposite of what God made you to be. So here's my point to you. As men, you are to think of yourself as a protector. You're here to protect all women. That's your God-mandated role and function in life, is to protect all women everywhere. You're not to abuse them, use and abuse them at all. That's not a real man. That's a ruined man. You're to protect all of them. You're protectors. And you have to start thinking of yourself in a new uh, fashion. Tomorrow I'm going to talk about how you can overcome and live a pure life in a very, very impure world. But today I want to set the stage on what a real man is. Now, considering all this, real men, what is going to be the answer for Adam in all this? <coughs> He, number one, he didn't take responsibility for anything. But real men do. Real men are willing to humble themselves before God. Adam wasn't. Real men are willing to sacrifice themselves to protect those under their care. Adam wasn't. That makes him less than a real man. It makes him in the category of a ruined man. So we don't want to be there. We want to be real men. doesn't matter what Hollywood says or James Bond says or Rambo says. No, it's what the Bible says about us. Now, I want you to notice something else that's here in the Word about this <clears throat> as to what happened next. 
So then, the Lord deals with this. And he says to the serpent, you're going to, on your belly you'll go and eat the dust. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And then he gives a promise here in Genesis 3.15 that one of his, of her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He is speaking of our Lord Jesus, the seed of the woman. He knew, God knew ahead of time what he was going to do about this. He was going to become man and take man's penalty upon himself to redeem us from our sins. Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent. But in doing so, he will be struck by the serpent at the cross. He will suffer there, but he will bring about this end of Satan's dominion over this earth. So there's the promise. And so he says then to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children, and yet your desire will always be for your husband. You'll be under him, and he will rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, rather than me and my word, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you in toil. You will eat of it all the days of your life. And goes on to thorns and thistles and sweat of his brow. So that all of life's going to be more, way more difficult for him. But he will live because there's the promise here. Now, I want you to see something else, though. Down to verse 20. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. That was, he, he believed the Lord here. He believed what he said, that she would bring forth a deliverer and that she would bring forth other children upon the earth. And that statement, uh, as he calls her that, is a, a statement of faith in what God declared to be true. Now, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, I believe there's something of a a message here to the man and the woman. In the case of the woman, he gave Eve a promise. But here, he gives Adam a picture. Adam and Eve sewed these fig leaves together to cover their shame. God had to slay an animal and take the skins and he, God, clothed them in something far more permanent. I think there's a picture here. And so that's why we say a a really godly man is real men are willing to humbly accept God's gift or God's provision. The fig leaves are some symbolic of us trying to deal with our own sin and shame and guiltiness. But here God made a provision and God's made a provision for you and me. It's the perfect righteousness of Christ which can be put to your account by faith. Your works sewing together fig leaves will never properly cover your shame or wash your sins away. In the figure he uses. We need that perfect 
righteousness of Christ put to our account, that robe of righteousness, that garment of salvation which the Lord himself wove for us. So, you know, that is what a real man is going to accept what God provides. It's humbling, but he'll accept it. Most religions worldwide, and even most kids you run into or people on the street, their view of salvation is this. Well, you know, if I live a pretty good life, uh, I, I guess I got a good shot of getting into heaven. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I'll probably be okay if I'm, you know, tilt the scales in the right direction. Of course, you can never have peace this way because you never know how much one weighs versus another or how many, who's keeping track of this in heaven and you don't know, the, can't look at the books. So it just creates uncertainty and fear. But for me, growing up as a young guy, I'd been to school, I figured <coughs> God is going to grade on the curve. You, you, you go to school, some of you are homeschooled, so your mother gives you automatic A's and everything. Then. But if you go to school, you know, you, you compete actually against other uh, students. And, you know, if you make a really good grade, uh, you may make a really bad grade. But if everybody else makes a bad grade, then you end up with a pretty decent one because you're compared to others. In my head... I thought, well, okay, some people are going to get saved. Some people are going to go to heaven. And so it's probably going to be the people that are really, really good. You know, I mean, they're going to do the best shot at it. So as long as I stay better than most everybody around me, I'm probably good shape here. You say, well, didn't you believe in Jesus? I did. I've been baptized when I was 10, but I was now in high school. And I thought, okay, am I a sinner? Yeah, sure, I've gotten plenty of spankings. It must be that. Uh, Well, do you believe Jesus uh, died on the cross for your sins? Sure. Uh, No reason to doubt it. (laughs) No. Uh, So, but here in my head, that was a very good work. But I needed to have a bunch of other ones. Can you see how subtle that is? I turned believing in Jesus into a good work that I had done. And my faith was in that good work plus all the others I do. So this got so ridiculous. At one point, I was going to good church, Baptist church, and one of my better friends who really did know the Lord, he would take his Bible to school. And I thought, oh, man, alive. I wish he'd never told me that. Because now I have to take my Bible to school. Because I've got to stay in the top percentiles. You know, I've a hope of heaven. So I took my Bible to public high school. And there were no believers in my class. So... I buried it under all my books. And then I thought, that's not good enough. You have to bring it out, put it on the top. And I was dying. I hope nobody sees it, you know. So I went through the day. And I finally got back to my locker and put it away. And thought, oh, okay, I proved I'd do that. I'm done. I never have to do that again. You know, so I'm staying in the top percentiles. Do you see what how wrong that is? 
my, you know what's wrong about it? God doesn't grade on the curve. God grades on this basis. You make a hundred or you flunk. Yeah. One hundred or F. Now, how would you like to have a class that was that way and the tests were really hard? You wouldn't have much hope of it. But look, here it is. Galatians 3.10 says this. Cursed is everyone who doesn't continue in everything that's written in the book of the law to do it. That's the standard. you got to do it all. If you don't do it all, you're under a curse. James 2.10, he says, If you keep the whole law and yet offend at one point, you're guilty of all of it. Wow. <laughs> so who's going to keep that standard? I can't. I'm just not capable of that. But Jesus did. There was no sin in him at all. His righteousness can be put to your account that perfectly fulfills the law. God, the Father, made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Think of it like a computer here. All right, so you have screen comes up and here are all your sins in the books of heaven there's pages and pages of them but they click select all and so they block all of your sins and then you right click and click cut all your sins are taken off your account records they move it over to Jesus's account and they right click and click paste all of it pasted onto him then they take the righteousness of Christ select all all of it all of his good deeds all that he did that was right all of it and not cut because he's always that but copy and they move it over to your account right click paste God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Isn't that that's just glorious? You stand before the Lord not for anything you are, but because of what he is alone. See, the Christian is different than any other religion on the earth. They're all based on this, what man must do for God. Christianity is the only religion that's based on what God has done for man. It's just awesomely different. Let me tell you one last reason why here good works don't work. Number one, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, with good works are based on fear. Oh man, if I mess up, uh, I'm out. So it's fear driven. Good deeds don't erase bad ones, do they? Only blood erases sins. Your bad ones are still there. They're not going away. So, do you think your good deeds erase them? That doesn't work even with the scales in the sky thing. And here's another big one to me, which hit me when I was groping about all this. 
good works are defined like this. Every religion has their own little list of them. Muslims have theirs and all their five pillars of the faith stuff. But good works are generally this. Things you do for God or things you do, nice things you do for other people. Okay? Make that assumption. I think that's pretty reasonable. Things you do for God or things you do for others. Okay. If you think your good works are what's going to get you into heaven, who are your good works really for? They're all for you. God isn't tricked by that. He's not deceived by that for a single second. They appear to be for God, but really they're for you, aren't they? They appear to be for other people, but they're really for you. That's why your righteousness is this filthy rags. It's unacceptable. Well, finally here, we've underestimated God's holiness and hatred of even one sin. No, we need the perfect righteousness of God to our account. When that happens, when you see that and embrace it, that's called repentant faith. Repentance is sometimes called the negative side of faith. But think of, you can think of it like this. Turning. Sometimes in the Bible you say to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Other verses say repent. Uh, every one of you, says Peter. Well, that's like two sides of one coin. By faith I can turn to this speaker. That's one action. I can say, well, I'm going to turn to this. But if that same motion is, you could describe it negative. Dan, turn away from that chair. Well, that implies I'm turning to this. So sometimes the Bible flip-flops these. A negative and a positive way of the one motion. But by faith, you turn to the blood of Jesus Christ to wash your sins away. By faith, you accept His righteousness put to your account forever in heaven. And thirdly, you accept his authority over your life. That means you turn from your sins to his salvation. You turn away from faith in your good works to put your faith in his work for you on the cross. And finally, from you being Lord of your life to letting him be Lord of your life. That's real salvation. Now, real hurriedly, and our time is about up. So, repentance is turning from self as Savior and Lord, and by faith, turning to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Repentance is giving up on yourself in every way and giving everything over to Jesus Christ. That When that's done... You're not just have sins forgiven. You're a new man. You become a new creation in Christ. And that new creation, that regenerate man, that's a way you can become a real man. We've been through what God created men to be, ruined man, but you can be a regenerate man, a new creation. Real men then live to know and do, sorry, live to know and do the God's will, not their own. I'm not going to cite all of these, but 
That's a key verse for the whole conference uh, every year is he died and rose and revived that we might uh, not live unto ourselves but unto him. Matthew 6.10 is thy kingdom come, thy will be done is the model prayer. And Jesus himself, John 5.30, only did that which he saw the Father doing. He's a real man, the perfect man. Real men are strong enough to admit it when they're wrong and seek forgiveness of God and man. Don't cover. You might still sin as a believer, but don't hide it from the Lord and put things right with each other. Real men keep their word. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness, that you're reliable, that when you give your word, you're going to keep it even if it hurts to do so. So don't give it very easily, but if you do, then unless it's sinful, you need to keep your word. Real men stand up for Jesus. That's tough, and sometimes we need more courage than we have, but he gives us boldness for that. And real men exercise self-control. Proverbs 16.32 is, He that controls his own temper is better than he who takes a walled city. That's a real man who can single-handedly take a city. But you control your temper and control your motions. You're better man than him who takes a, a walled city. Jesus controlled himself. He could have called 12 legions of angels and wiped out all of Jerusalem. But... He accepted the will of the Father and endured suffering and never threatened them in exchange for this. They crucified him. So real men actively depend on God and are men of prayer. Take Jesus as your example. That's what he was. All of this is what he was. Always kept his word. Always dependent on the Father. Always obedient to the Father. You want to know what a real man is? It's Jesus Christ. He's the perfect one and the perfect model of manhood for you and me. All right, tomorrow we're going to talk about your assets. What do you have to make that life your life? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for newness of life in Christ, for salvation in his name. We desire, Lord, to be real men and no longer live like ruined ones, but to live on the terms that you've created us to be and intend for us to be. So quicken and enable us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.